Hello and welcome to the Arsenal Beat, the only podcast which brings together the journalists and reporters who cover Arsenal for the various major publications in the UK. I'm Sam Dean from the Daily Telegraph, and today I'm joined by two of the finest Jameses in the business, ESPN's James Olley and James McNicholas of The Athletic. All three of us were there at Sellers Park on Monday night, so we'll be looking back at what went wrong for Arsenal and also examining the numerous long-term implications of their sudden injury crisis. Who comes into the team? Who goes out? How many more minutes will Nuno Tavares play this season? Can Charlie Patino play left-back? All of the big questions and issues we will be confronting. We'll also look ahead to Brighton game on Saturday, which on paper is probably the easiest remaining game of Arsenal season, based on form at least. And yes, I am aware that sounds very much like a curse. Now, James McNicholas, I'll come to you first. What went wrong on Monday night? Or maybe the better question is what went right on Monday night? Yeah, difficult to say what went right. I mean, it felt like everything that could have gone wrong for Arsenal did. Um, obviously, the injury to Thomas Partey, a big part of that. But the performance, I think, especially in the first half hour, was really, really poor. Um, there were defensive errors at the back. To be honest, that was only part of the problem. When Arsenal had possession themselves, they couldn't live with Palace's physicality, with their pressing, their touch looked off. They seemed to struggle to contend with the surface, with the intensity. It was as bad a performance as we've seen from Arsenal for some time. I mean, we were debating it post-game. When was the last time they were this bad? I think probably you'd have to go back, maybe even to the Etihad right at the start of the season in terms of, you know, this poor quality of performance. I think the only <laughs> the only sort of vestige of hope you can really offer Arsenal fans is that it was kind of anomalous in how awful it was. It was sort of, uh, it felt a bit like an aberration. It's quite rare that front to back, team just completely don't show up really there really were very few players to emerge with any credit whatsoever and I guess Mikel Arteta's task now will be to try and compartmentalize that as you say the fixture list has it's quite a daunting run in some respects and difficult games but in this particular instance it's been quite kind I mean Brighton at home is the sort of fixture you would wish for after a performance and a result like that. James you wrote on Joe Zolli you wrote on ESPN about the the size of the squad now. And I suppose that's the big issue, isn't it? That it's, yes, the game was an aberration and you'd like to draw a line underneath that, but there are long-term consequences of that game which might prevent Arsenal from doing so. Yeah, I mean, after they beat Wolves, uh, I kind of broke the cardinal sin, really, of writing a slightly, well, it wasn't really negative piece, but sort of more of a questioning piece rather than, oh, they won, so everything's great. Um, and I got quite a bit of stick for it, but the, the, the general tone of that piece was, you know, this is sort of the high wire act they've signed up for. You know, the, the margins are, are quite slim and there's going to be a few of these between now and the end of the season. And, and I think what we saw at Palace on Monday was probably the flip side of that when, it, you know, when, when they, they're not at the races and, and, you know, they fall off the high wire, I suppose. Um, and because as bad as they were, and James is right, you know, the first half an hour was was appalling, really, and really below, I think, probably what Arteta thought he had set as a base level for performance. Um, they still actually created quite a few decent chances. And, um, you know, that game could have still been quite different. If you think about 
I mean, Odegaard, Smithrow, and Saka all had you know good opportunities, and and really that piece I wrote after Wolves was about well those three, Martinelli obviously also as well, Pepe off the bench, they've been able to kind of offset the lack of goal threat from Lacazette. But you're asking those players to do that every single week, and it's not always gonna it's not always gonna fall your way, and and that was part of the problem why they couldn't get back into the game on Monday because it wasn't as if, you know, the, the level of performance was still bad, but it did at least improve. It wasn't as if they didn't create anything. It's just they didn't they weren't able to take those opportunities, and compounded by how badly they started the game, there was there was you know there was no uh, no recourse for them to recover, but. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've seen one or two sort of like, are they in crisis type pieces now? I, I don't I think that would be an overreaction, but I, but I just think it, it, January left them with such a thin margin for error and that's been fine, and, and, you know, up until now. And it's, and it's made a lot of sense because they've got a streamlined group that are all pulling in the same direction, most of whom are obviously playing because <laughs> there aren't that many others on the sidelines to come in but as soon as one or two dip in performance or you get one or two injuries suddenly this the, the gamble that that they took in january is is re- really shown in a very um unforgiving light it was quite extraordinary to look at the benches um on monday night and james but nicholas you you flagged this up beforehand i think the palace bench had considerably more experience and quality than arsenal's bench which obviously is unusual. Is is that going to be the big issue now when you lose two players of the quality and importance of Kieran Tierney and Thomas Partey? And we don't know how long Partey's out for, but we know Tierney's out the rest of the season. Is that the issue now that they've left themselves in this position where they haven't got the depth? I think so. I think, and they must have known that on deadline day, as James alludes to, you know, they took a significant gamble there in January, um, I think when you look over the road, you look at Spurs, you look at the acquisitions they made, they seem to have improved them, particularly Kulosevsky, who's really you know, increased their potential as an attacking force. Um, Benteke doing all right as well in midfield. So inevitably, Arsenal are going to, I think, reflect on that decision. They chose to stick with what they have. I think there is a depth issue across the squad. I mean, we talk about the injured players, <clears throat> you know, Kieran Tierney and Thomas Partey and Obviously, Arsenal were looking at central midfielder in January. Potentially, it didn't happen in the end. That leaves them a bit light there. But I don't think it's just the injuries that that call this into question. I mean, we talk about scoring goals, talk about Lacazette. The reality is there isn't really a proven alternative to him within the squad. And I think if you look at his last two performances, Villa and then Palace, I think they've been short of the, the level that he'd previously set. I don't think he's been contributing kind of the other aspects of his game beyond the goal scoring that maybe he was a little bit earlier in Arsenal's season. But when you look at the alternatives, you've got Eddie Nketiah, who obviously is not proven at Premier League level, although I thought he, he looked bright enough, actually, coming off the bench the other day. And then you're talking about Martinelli and Smith-Rowe, both of whom arguably are more effective elsewhere in the side and are relatively untested as number nines. And I think that's an issue for an Arsenal side. You know, I think when you look at the race for top four, James mentioned the Wolves game. When Arsenal have been winning games, it has been by relatively fine margins, whereas Spurs look like a team who, you know, I don't take any great pleasure in saying it, but they're creating a lot of chances at the present time. And sort of the margins of their victories appear a bit wider, a bit more comfortable. 
I do think as much as kind of the tyranny and the party thing are, are problems for Arsenal at the present time, Lacazette's form and the lack of an alternative to him also illustrates that depth issue. This is the decision Arsenal took in January. Um, and yeah, you, you have to wonder after a result like the one they got at Selhurst Park without wishing to go overboard, if it may be something that they ultimately pay for come, come the end of the season. James Olly, the left-back situation, what, what are they going to do about this? Because Nuno Tavares, well, I mean, actually, you could argue that he's making some pretty good progress because he uh, played 34 minutes against Nottingham Forest <laughs> and, and, and got a full 45 this time around. So he's, uh, he's on the upward trajectory. Clearly, he was struggling. Um, and it's difficult for him because he's not had much minutes and he's coming in and playing a, a difficult ground against quite a good Palace team. But do you just give it to him now as the season so you you know, make it your own, Nuno, or what happens now? Can they do well, that? I have to say, I did think Arteta's treatment of him was odd in, in the context of what we later found out and what they clearly already knew, which was that, you know, Tierney's injury is serious and Tommy Asu is not, you know, imminently going to return. And, I mean, Tavares Tavar had a bad game. Let's, let's, you know, let's not hide from that. And you know he was he was very bad. I mean, he was worse at Forest. He was an I, I, at Forest. He looked an utter liability, and I could understand why he took him off there as 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 much as a first half substitution that's not an injury is uh, you know is a bit of a slight on a player's um, ability. I, I just think off the back of that, and this was his the first start since then. To, to effectively do it again, you say obviously you got to half time, but to do it again, I, I, that is when you know that Tierney's going to be out and you know that Cedric, I mean, I'll come on to this in a minute, but you're sort of logical of maybe switching Cedric to left back and Tommy Asu, if he's back, he obviously then slots in at right back, might be the next most logical uh, decision to make. Uh, to, to sort of dig out. Tavares like that publicly. I thought Thomas Partey was worse in the first half. I thought Lacazette was utterly anonymous in the first half. You know, if you're thinking about, and I know he explained it afterwards from a tactical point of view, wanting to get Martinelli into the team and switching systems and all of that. And I get all of that. But I just think the difference between taking Tavares off at 55, 60 minutes versus hauling him off at half time in the context of the game that he played before at Forest in the context of the fact that you might now suddenly have to put your eye on and say, hey, Nuno, I know your confidence is on the floor, but can you go out and, you know, salvage our top four hopes by basically deputising for, you know, one of the key players in the team for, for the remaining nine games? I think you'll probably start Tabarez because, because it's the most logical thing to do. But I, I just thought from on a purely man management level, and I understand he needs to chase the game, and he needed to mix it up and he needed to get a message into them, not just from what he said in the dressing room, but by making a change at half time. But I just thought to do that to Tavares again, after what happened at Forest, and given how much he may well need him between now and the end of the season, that that wasn't great, I didn't think, from Arteta. I think to single him out like that in, in that way, I, I thought he could have handled that a bit better. James but Nicholas, you wrote a piece with Art de Roche on The Athletic about potential options now that Arteta has. Obviously, Tavares being one of them, Cedric being one of them, as James mentions, maybe Saka goes left back, maybe Granit Xhaka goes left back. 
maybe some academy kid that no one's ever seen before goes left back. What, what, what do you think would ha- will happen now? Uh, I don't think it'll be one of the academy kids, that's for sure. I, I think it will be one of the solutions that exist within the first team. I think that the Thomas Partey injury probably nixes the idea of it being Shaka. I just think to take both of those players out the middle of the park would be too much really for Arsenal to handle. Um, I think for me, it's between Tavares and Cedric. Uh, and I think if it's going to be Tavares, I think there are kind of other tweaks you need to make within the team a little bit to kind of play to his strengths and arguably disguise some of his weaknesses. I think he's been at his best going forward. He's been at his best in the opposition half. I think if you were to say, change the shape of the midfield slightly, allow Granit Xhaka to play slightly deeper as he did in the first half of the season where he can provide a bit of cover on that part of the pitch, allow Tavares to push a bit higher. Basically, I think if Tommy Asu comes back, I think you can, um, I think there's a better balance between Tommy Asu and Tavares. And actually we saw that as a decent fullback pairing uh, in kind of October, November time. I think that would help. So I think you could recalibrate if the manager just has no faith in the player and if the player's confidence is completely shot, which could be the case, as James suggests, then I think it's got to be Cedric. And although it's not his best position, he's shown enough in this run at right back that he is relatively dependable, reliable. The manager seems to trust him. And I think that's more than could be said for Tavares at the present time. So if Cedric goes left back, who would go in at right back, do you think? Well, I mean, as I say, it'd be contingent on Tommy Asu coming back sooner rather than later. He's going to be out another couple of weeks yet. But I guess Ben White would be another option. You know, you could go Rob Holding in the centre. I think Ben White is quite well suited to that role. Played it for England with some success uh, during the international break. Very comfortable on that flank. So I think that might be the way. I mean, this is the problem Arsenal have now is that having lost to Palace, I'm sure what Arteta would like would be able to kind of field his strongest 11, get back to basics, back on a winning trend. But he now has a number of issues in the team that he has to tinker with, he has to change, and each one kind of affects other areas of the pitch. Um, so it's it's a it's a big week. And I think if, Ta- if Tavares doesn't start Saturday, then I think the chances of him starting between now and the end of the season are pretty slim. I think this basically tells us on Saturday whether Arteta thinks this player has a long-term future in North London. Because if he does... I think you've got to give him the opportunity. He's your second choice left back. You've got to try and rehabilitate him. If he doesn't play, uh, I'm always cautious to say this of a young player, but you have to think that the manager ultimately doesn't fancy him. Yeah, I was going to say, if, if he doesn't play, and while this might sound dramatic, I wouldn't be surprised if that pretty much signals the end of his Arsenal career and they just try and move him on. Because if they don't, if they can't play him now, then when will you play him? It's just totally... Yeah. It's, it's, that's, not, that's not dramatic at all. I mean, you've got to look at it from his point of view. He's, you know, he, he signs knowing how highly they rate Tierney, knowing the system that they play. He knows he's going to have to wait for an opportunity like this. He now has, you know, the run-in, the business end of the season, nine games where he... You know, at the start of the season, if you gave him this scenario, he'd be thinking, right, I'm playing every week till now, between now and the end of the season. And if he doesn't play now, he's got no future at the club. How can he? How can, how can he realistically stay on if 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 he's not given a run now? I'm going back to January briefly. Um, 
I think loosely, well, I certainly am I'm fully um, supportive of the Bamiyang decision and the Kalasanach decision. And, and basically most of the decisions they made to let six players go. The, the one I can't understand still is Callum Chambers going on free for no transfer fee to Aston Villa when essentially, obviously they saved his wages for a few months, but I don't think that's going to be particularly game-changing cost. And if you look at the squad and the squad profile, the closest thing to Tommy Asu in terms of style was Chambers playing at right back in the way he, you know, interpreted that role and often made it a back three, good in the air, much more sort of defensive minded than someone like Cedric. And if he was there, that, that would make Tavares' job much easier, I think, because it would basically be the same as playing with Tommy Asu at the right back. Or it would be he'd come in ahead of, ahead of Cedric anyway, because he was better than Cedric last season and he's probably a better defender than Cedric. So that's the one I can't quite get my head around. I mean, if they got £5 million for him, then fair play, but they didn't. And I just, on that one, I struggle a bit. And maybe I'm alone in that. No, well, it's a really strange one. I, sorry, James, but I, I think it is quite a strange one, especially when you consider Arsenal, you know, they had an option to trigger an extra year on Chambers' contract, which elapsed December 31st. Uh, that presumably would have put them in a position to demand some sort of fee for the player. Um, you know, we all know that the losses Arsenal posted this year, they're not in a position where they, they can or should be, you know, turning down a, a potential transfer fee. The, the only thing that I sort of heard about the Chamber situation was that there was a kind of um, uh, a man management element, you know, a, a degree to which kind of promises were made about players having opportunities to either play or go. And a bit like with Ainsley Maitland-Niles, it was felt that as a club, they had to kind of uh, deliver on that. But you're absolutely right. I mean, in terms of a direct replacement for Tommy Asu, and, and listen, Cedric hasn't done too badly in the last few weeks, but he, he has always appeared to me a far closer uh, sort of parallel player. Um, and at this point in time, with the issues that they face at fullback, yeah, I think people probably will look back on that and, and wonder about that deal. There was a moment at the end, James Ollie. I don't know if you clocked it um, amid everyone's writing and on deadline and stuff, but in about 89th minute, the Arsenal fans started singing the uh, the new Arteta song, which I was quite surprised by, um, given the result, given how the performance was. And I think for me, that underlined, certainly within the match-going support, which I think is often quite different to the social media support, how... Arteta has built that connection, as he terms it, and has created this bond that he was so desperate to create. And, and that, that was a, a real test of that bond, wasn't it? And it was one that he came through. Well, it reminded me, I mean, the context was different, but it, but it was almost five years to the day since they lost three, same scoreline, same ground, lost 3-0 at, at Palace, Allardyce's, well, not his finest hour, but, uh, you know, Allardyce revelling in uh, in getting one over on Arsene Wenger. Um, and that game ended with, you know, another fullback being um, just singled out for criticism. That was, you know, you're not fit to wear the shirt being sung at Bellerin. And, you know, it had some of the component ingredients where there could have been a repeat of that. But I think, I have to say, I was quite sceptical about when, you know, when, we, when the all the games were behind closed doors because of COVID and Arteta was sort of saying, oh, you know, we're really missing that bond and we need to create that bond. And I really think it will be there. I was sort of thinking, I'm not really sure whether 
I don't know, the last few years kind of tell me that, you know, that there will be a degree of scepticism there that you're going to have to overcome. But I have to say I was wrong on that. The, 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 the togetherness and the unity has been really palpable at the Emirates. And, you know, and they've stuck with the team at, at difficult moments in games when they've been struggling, when in the past, we all know we've all been there, it would have quickly turned toxic or they'd have maybe got on a player's back or... You know, so and it wouldn't have been about that player or even about that game. It would have been years of frustration manifesting in a certain scenario at a certain time. But that, you know, the, the, I think it's one of Arteta's biggest um, successes is that he's managed to change that that atmosphere, that environment. And yeah, you're right. It was it was noticeable that as bad as they were, particularly in the first half. And yeah, okay, we've already said they improved a little bit in the second half. But to get beaten three 0 in a game like that given what was at stake, the context of the season, you know, it, it, the ingredients were all there for, for a bit of a bit of blowback from the fans, but that just, yeah, it didn't happen. And and, um, and they're going to need that support now. They're going to need to stay with them because, you know, whatever happens from here, it's going to be, it's going to be fine margins. Of course, one of the things we haven't sort of ticked off here is that the, the goal difference swing last weekend is, is very big now. You know, it's obviously in Tottenham's favour, seven seven goal swing. They're now ahead in that as well. And I'm not saying it will come down to that, but that is, you know, that is a significant factor too. So yeah, they're going to need the support and it was it was good they start with them. Uh, James Ridiculous, as the only Arsenal fan in the room and someone who has been to quite a few games this year as a in, in a fan capacity. Were you surprised by the reaction on Monday night when, when the supporters did vocalise their love for Mikel? Yeah, it was interesting because I, the Palace fans sing the same song about Patrick Vieira, right? It's the same tune. So I, I did wonder if the Arsenal fans would uh, would deign to respond, especially given the way the game was going. I think that is encouraging. I did hear anecdotally from a few people in the away end that, as you would expect, uh, in the midst of a 3-0 thumping in a London derby, there was... A bit of dissent. I think you know some of the old grievances were aired, and I think there was a there were a few rows. But like you say, the majority seem to still be back in the team. I mean, I think I think they've earned that. To be fair, and they've had some very good results, especially away from home. So I think those travelling fans respect that and appreciate that, even when the games have been won by fine margins. In some ways, I think that's helped kind of bond the team with the fans. You know, you grind out a few one nils on the road and the travelling support, I think really sort of revel in that kind of thing. Um, and it will be interesting to see how that's reflected on Saturday. I'm sure the Emirates crowd, as they have been for most of the season, will be really up for it, really pushing the team to bounce back. And they know probably that they need that kind of support. I mean, where it gets interesting is if, you know, if they fail to win on Saturday or, you know, if they get past Brighton, but then struggle at Southampton, you know, that's where we'll see um, quite how far below the surface some of those old wounds are. You know, there was a time not too long ago in the midst of middle of last season where the opinion of the manager and opinion of the players was very, very different. Um, and that there's, it's been buoyed this season by you know, fans returning to stadiums. I think the euphoria of that, of the end of lockdown and the team's results improving have helped too. But, um, you know, something Arteta's done quite well this season is I think... He's prevented any crisis from deepening too far. You look at the start of the season, they lost three games. Okay, there were some mitigating factors, but then he turned it around very, very quickly. 
there was that period, I think it was November, they went to Manchester United and Everton lost twice in the space of the week, but again, was able to steady the ship. Um, I'm not sure he can even afford two games at this point in the season. It's so tight. Every match is so important. He really needs to turn it around very, very quickly. In fairness to him, he's shown a capacity to do that. Um, so I'll be fascinated to see what sort of response we get on Saturday. The left-back situation, but not necessarily the central midfield slot. James Olly, is it going to be just Lekonga coming straight in, do you think? It, I think it will be Lekonga over Mohamed Elneny. Um, <laughs> I, I think that does make the most sense. Um, I mean, I'm with you guys as well on, on, on the Xhaka point. I think, you know, we've been down this road many times before with Xhaka, but the sort of my line on him is always I don't I don't think he's good enough for a team that wants to be in the top four consistently but he's still the better option than, than most that Arsenal have got so I don't I think taking him out of that midfield when you've lost party doesn't make any sense um, and kind of, kind of compounds the problem so uh, yeah I would think it would be Jack and Lekonga Do you have faith in Lekonga James Nicholas? I have to say, at the start of the season, I I I, I quite liked him. I I thought um, I thought they had a player in there, I, and I remember speaking to to a couple of people um, who'd watched him before in in, um, in Belgium and sort of said that he's raw and he needs to learn, but he's got everything to become you know a, a sort of solid Premier League level midfielder. And, and I like I just I liked him on the ball. I liked his character. Um, the pace of the game, which is something that can can often pass midfielders by when they when they come straight into our league, he, he seemed to be up to speed with that fairly fairly quickly. Um, the, yeah, the lack of recent football is the big issue. Um, but yeah, I, I like what I saw. I'd like to see more of him to get a fuller judgment. But yeah, I think there's a, he's got good potential, and I, I think he he could become a very useful player. But the, the problem is he's going to have to do that immediately. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I don't know if you saw, um, I'm sure you didn't, there were some uh, some stats basically saying the minutes played in the Premier League um, this season by Arsenal players. Uh, so since January the 1st, it shows that 12 players have basically played all the minutes. And then beyond that, nobody had played more than 140 minutes, and that was Rob Holding. So essentially, Mikel Arteta's had a 12-man team, 11 starters, and then swap Gabriel Martinelli with Smith-Rowe, depending on who starts that game. And that, I know we covered this about the sort of the squad depth, but the other issue to that, as mentioned with Lekonga, is, is game time and rustiness and the, the fundamental problem of throwing someone in out of nowhere and just saying, keep up with it. And when you have the Europa League, you can get into a rhythm and momentum. And I know the argument has been Arsenal have benefited massively from not playing midweek. But I think at times like this, there's an argument to say, well, actually, playing against Dundalk away with your essentially second string team at least allows that second string team to get some rhythm together. Is that is that fair, James Billicklis? I think so. Although to be fair, those those fixtures come in the first half of the season, and Lekonga played a decent amount of football in the first half of the season. I think there are there are some sort of parallels actually with Tavares in that I think they both played a lot more minutes in that first half of the campaign probably than anybody anticipated for a variety of reasons. Arsenal obviously suffered a lot with injuries and suspension in central midfield, which gave Lekonga his chance. Um, and, and actually, the parallels continue because Lekonga, like Tavares, had a couple of quite difficult games. He played at Anfield in a heavy defeat and 
struggled, particularly at the start of the second half, I thought, in that match. And then he was part of the Forest uh, debacle, you know, where I think a lot of players standing under Arteta seem to suffer a little bit. I, I do think that there is greater, significantly greater kind of long-term faith in him as a prospect and as a player. And when you look at the fact that he's continuing to be called up for a very gifted Belgium squad, I think that indicates this is someone with real potential. In the long term, they do view him as someone who could play that kind of Thomas Partey role, you know, taking the ball off the back four and distributing from there. I just think it's such a massive test because I think there's a case that Partey has been kind of the key piece in Arsenal's structure of late. He's kind of enabled them to shift the shape of the midfield to have just one guy deeper, Shaka pushing a bit higher. To be honest, that takes Shaka a bit out of harm's way in some respects, out of the dangerous areas where he can be pressed. Uh, and also just enables Arsenal to have more, carry more attacking threat, more bodies in the opposition box. To place all that responsibility on Lukonga uh, feels like a, a, a significant onus. And I do wonder if we'll see Shaka kind of as I suggested earlier, dropping in, playing a bit deeper next to Lukonga, just to give the Arsenal a bit more stability uh, and a bit less reliance on a player who, as you say, has barely played since you know early January. The four-three-three, it's dead already. Just a few weeks yeah. in, so short-lived. <laughs> Only recently, like in the last sort of two or three weeks, did I actually start listing it as four three three on the on the team details of match report. I thought, no, I'm going to have to go there and call it the four three three that it really is. And already, already, it's gone. Uh, I right, mean, you know, you can call it a four three three if you want. I mean, ultimately, there's there's going to be three players in the middle of the park. But I do just think, yeah, Shaka. I'd be surprised if we're seeing him kind of bombing on and running beyond Martinelli and things like that at this point. I think. I think they'll drop him in to support Lukonga, um, at least to begin with, just while he finds his feet in the team. Because coming in with no rhythm at such a crucial point in the running is very difficult. And I do think that's, to go back to Tavares, is an aspect of his performance that is worthy of some mention as well. You know, he there are ch- times he could have been used as a substitute in the past few weeks and he hasn't been. Maybe, you know, a criticism of Arteta would be that you have to know that you're going to rely on these guys at some point. Can you do more to keep them warm? Can you do more to help them generate some kind of form uh, instead of just calling upon them when they're, they're absolutely cold? Mm-hmm. Um, final word, James Ollie, just on, on Brighton. They've won once in their last 13 games, which was against Watford, and they've scored one goal in their last seven matches, despite their XG being, you know, in typical Brighton fashion, I think it's about eight or nine. So, on paper, as we sort of mentioned, that, that really is the easiest of, of wins, surely. But then this is Arsenal, and that's not how this works. No, no. Um, well, they don't they don't score goals, do they? I mean, I think there's only a couple of teams. I think they've scored 26 goals in the Premier League. And I meant to write this down, but I think it's only Norwich and Burnley who've scored fewer. So, you know, they don't score goals as a general rule. I know their XG is, you know... Uh, is higher and, and and they are creating more than that single figure would suggest. But I think this is going to be about, um, not that Brighton are, are overtly defensive, but I think this is going to be about bringing it full circle to what we talked about near the start, which is 
are they are Arsenal going to have their shooting boots on? Are they going to is Lacazette going to be able to rediscover some some form in front of goal, or are the supporting cast not going to fluff their lines like they did at Palace? And you know, while we talk about Brighton's lack of maybe goal threat or certainly scoring goals, they don't concede that many either. And and I don't see it being a particularly high scoring game. I just see it being you know. I think we all know what the rough the pattern of the game will be and it will be a case of the, the, the sort of half a dozen or maybe fewer chances that Arsenal create. Will they be clinical and will they take them? Given given where Brighton are at the moment, you'd think one goal might even be enough. But, you know, if, if Smith Rowe, Odegaard, Saka, Martinelli, three of those four, maybe all four, but I would think three of those four play, the chances invariably the way that Arsenal play will fall to them. Can they take them? If they do, they'll win the game. Um, don't want to overtly simplify it, but it, it does feel like it's going to come down to that. And, and really, that is where Arsenal are between now and the end of the season. They are a good enough side to create chances against almost anyone they play against, but they don't create a lot. But they just need to be clinical. And when they are, like they, are, they were at Watford, for example... Um, you know, they can get themselves into a really strong position really quickly. But the longer it goes on, if we get to nil-nil and it's, a, you know, half-time, if we get to nil-nil and it's an hour in, it will start to get edgy, it will start to get tense. That's when they need to hold their nerve. But as I say, this is this is the high-wire act. I'm going to call it now. I'm going to go bold prediction. Um, Nuno Tavares, I think one of his, 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 his most recent starts was against maybe perhaps his last start was against Newcastle at home and he spent the first half um, essentially shooting from 40 yards re- repeatedly uh, to such an extent that the the Arsenal fans were literally shouting don't shoot when he got the ball which was always good fun I predict that he starts and against Robert Sanchez who's had a bit of a shaky few weeks in the Brighton goal Nuno Tavares scores a right foot screamer from at least 33 yards that's my call and if, if you guys are happy with it, we'll leave it on that. Unless any other business, James and Nicholas? No, not really. I mean, only to say that, you know, a, a word of comfort to Arsenal fans. I know it feels after a heavy defeat, like the sky's falling in sometimes, especially with a couple of injuries thrown into the mix. But I think this is an interesting weekend. Arsenal have got a, a favourable fixture. I think we're all agreed on that. And I think of Tottenham's fixtures, this is actually one of their harder ones, you know, going away to Miller Park this weekend. So, who knows? I do think there are twists and turns to come in this race and the complexion might look slightly different come Saturday evening. So, let's wait and see. Hmm. Absolutely. Right, we'll leave it there and we will be back, uh, I'm sure. Producer Mark is saying, yes, we will. Be back next week uh, post-Brighton to look ahead to who's next, Southampton. So, yeah. Thank you very much both and everyone else. Stay safe and thanks for listening. <laughs>